0: Our Mets playoff hopes are dead and gone. They're dead and gone. They're dead and gone. After dropping two or three to the Rays, the Mets guaranteed yet another sub-500 season as there won't be any October baseball this year in Queens.
1: An old friend in Sandy Alderson is back with the organization. The Mets have four games left until Uncle Stevie begins a very important offseason.
0: We'll get into the disappointing season and look into our crystal balls into the future with the team as WFAN radio host Maggie Gray joins us.
1: All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome back to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post.
0: That's the voice of former Met with a beard, Nelson Figueroa. I'm his co-host, Jake Brown. Head over to Apple Podcasts,
1: find Amazing But True, give us the five-star rating and write in a nice review. If you're not subscribed there, find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate your support in our debut season of the show and love, love, love your feedback.
0: And, you know, we'll be back in the off-season when news happens, and we'll be back as normal next week, next Monday, so stay tuned for that. And in this episode of the show, in the second half of the show, in just a little bit, WFAN's Maggie Gray is going to join Figgy and I, but first... Oh boy. This season has essentially come to an end for the Mets. Wednesday night essentially seals the Mets' fate. They lose 8-5 to the Rays, they lose 2 out of 3. They had to at the very worst go 5 and 1 and finish 500. Instead, they will have their third of four season finishing under 500. They have four games in D.C. against the Nationals to finish up the season, but that's pretty much it for the Mets. Now, listen, mathematically, they're not dead, and here I'll lay it out. By the time you listen to this, it'll probably change, and they'll probably be out. But if they do want a chance to get in, the the route that would get them there is probably second place in the NL East. And what needs to happen is this. The Mets lead the head-to-head tiebreaker against the Marlins. They do not lead the head-to-head tiebreaker against the Phillies. So that means... The Phillies have to lose their final three against the Rays. Not inconceivable. The Rays have already clinched, you know, first place, so they aren't playing for much, but the Phillies are reeling. They are 4-6 and six in their last 10, and if they get swept... That knocks them away from the Mets' picture. They need the Marlins at the very worst to go 1-3 in their last four games. If they tie with the Marlins, and obviously the Mets have to win out, they will get that second-place spot. So, Phillies lose three, Marlins go 1-3, they have one against the Braves, and then three Yankee Stadium against the Yankees, who are still playing for seeding and trying to play for home field, so they are playing meaningful games against the Yankees. That is the path to get in. If you got through all that, God bless you, the <laughs> Mets are done. And Figgy, on that note, very disappointing that this team is going to finish under 500, that this team is probably missing the playoffs with all the talent that they had. There's no excuse. We can look at all the positives and Steve Cohn coming in the offseason that we expect to be bright ahead as long as he gets approval. But this season was nothing short of a disappointment. There are positives to take away here and there. But overall, as a whole, this sucks with 16 teams not playing in October.
1: Yeah, I don't think that anybody thought that the Mets would be out of a 16 team, especially. Once we heard that, we're like, okay, so they're going to get in. And they just could not right the ship. They couldn't sustain a winning streak. They couldn't go more than three games without the roof caving in. Um, It was really hard to watch at times because you could see the young core, the lineup, really doing some nice things. And even though Alonzo didn't hit his weight, the home runs were there. Uh, You saw some at-bats that were positive. You saw McNeil, turned his season around, went from cantankerous swings in and fouling off pitches to all of a sudden starting to figure it out and adding both the power and the batting average skyrocketed. Conforto, after we praised him, and this, this happened to us at SNY when we kind of compared him to Bryce Harper and Mike Trout. And then I think he went like one for 32 after that. We just praised him for turning the corner and being that quiet kind of superstar that is just putting up those steady numbers every year and that it's only 60 games. But if you extrapolate it, you know, he was having a phenomenal season, chance to hit 30 home runs and 100 RBIs. That's who this guy has become. And he's kind of disappeared, you know, as well, where where they needed him the most. Uh, He's come up in big situations. He's come up with men in scoring position. And, and he struggled at the wrong time. That's what baseball is about. You've got to find a way to get hot and stay hot. And, and, and it's, uh, they would say, hitting's contagious. Man, losing is as well. We've seen it on the other side. And I said early on in the season, when we talked about our predictions and everything else. And we looked at the schedule. I dreaded playing Tampa Bay this late. With with something to play for, because Tampa Bay is, was not going to be an easy uh, team to play against, an easy opponent. It just you, you can see the way that they play the game on all facets. They're just they're nonstop. Well, they're, they're it was the here.
0: tale of two different teams. You saw them run the bases well and play defense and pitch well, and then you saw the the blunders that have continued to plague the Mets. It was the tale of a World Series contender and a team you know desperately trying for some kind of last playoff spot. It really showed at Citi Field this week.
1: Yeah, and and that's what Tampa Bay has become. They have become so consistent at being who they are. And it doesn't matter about payroll or throwing money at it. the Mets didn't just play them, I couldn't name five guys in their lineup. I couldn't. I couldn't name four guys in their in their pitching staff. You know, that's the beauty of them playing in Tampa Bay. They're used to playing not under a lot of pressure, not with a lot of fans there. Not with but they play the game the right way. And I don't care what analytics say. Kevin Cash was a young choice as a manager. He went down there and because he was involved with the scouting side of things and the development side of things you know there was a lot of trust built into doing some of the things that they've done throughout the years you know they were one of the first teams to go with an opener they were one of the first teams to say you know what screw it we don't have five good starters we have four good starters we'll go without a fifth starter bullpen guys they know the truth about bullpen guys they don't pay bullpen guys they're interchangeable every year they just reshuffle the deck you know they had 13 different relievers i think they went to this year and each one of them is a 95 plus with a nasty wipeout uh, secondary pitch so so it's, it's incredible to watch that organization and, and watch the trajectory that they're on and th- that steady climb to where they've clinched already to go for the American League East. Um, and It's been impressive to watch. On the other side of it, not even Jacob DeGrom striking out 14. It was enough, you know, and it's just sad. It's just sad to see that the wasting of the offensive talent this year the, that they were able to do all year long the timely hitting early on in the season killed them for sure men in scoring position leaving a lot of runners on base but that meant they had a lot of runners on so that told you that they were putting the ball in play and doing you know the little things that's the difference they weren't doing the little things to score runs they weren't doing the you know, moving guys over, you know, less than two outs and, you know, giving an opportunity for those runs to uh, be driven in instead of it having to be a three-run home run to, you know, excite the fan base. So I I think that's where we're looking at these, uh, those two teams over the last series and the differences. And what are you left with? A miracle needs to happen. You're talking about other teams need to lose three, Mets need to win out. And we just finished saying, they don't do winning streaks very well in Met uniforms.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's it, the stats are skewed, of course, but this Mets starting rotation, as crazy as it sounds, replaces the worst-ever team in Mets history in 1962 for ERA. Their ERA in 62 is 5.18, and the Mets is above that. It's worse, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. It was that bad coming into this series. So, you know, you're watching this weekend to avoid last place. You're going to see one more Jacob DeGrom start. And listen, he's not winning the Cy Young. At this point, it seems like Trevor Bauer last night locked it in with that 173 ERA It's down to basically Bauer and Corbin Burns, so pretty wild that he's even in the race. You got to think it's Bauer, and how fitting would it be, Figgy, if Bauer wins the Cy Young, takes them to the playoffs, and then the Mets sign him in the offseason and have two Cy Young winners to lead the staff, you can inject that in my veins. As much as we want to say Bauer, you know, his attitude, and it'll be a problem in New York. If you have those two guys atop the rotation, and then Noah Syndergaard coming back. Then we look at the Mets rotation with the Seth Lugo and Peterson, and maybe they go out and get another starter. That immediately went from a strength to weakness, back to his strength again if that you know situation plays out
1: oh yeah and, and what do we have coming in this offseason is the checkbook is going to be wide open uh, and so what you're looking for is two big pieces you're going to need a starting pitcher Trevor Bauer fits that bill he's a, a guy that I think can go out of a small market team and pitch in a big market and do really really well Um, as long as he doesn't you know go crazy uh, I could see him going crazy and getting getting a getting too much attention from everybody. He likes to go out and argue with the trolls. He likes to do that. And people just bait you here in New York. And so it's different when you're a Midwest guy and you're in the obscurity of Cincinnati. I, I don't think it'll be uh, his best luck to sit there after games and arguing with everybody till five o'clock in the morning. But I do love the idea of Bauer in a, in a Met uniform. I, I like his repertoire and his pitches and, and what he's become as a pitcher. This was the year to do it, right? This was the year that it was a, Instead of it being that marathon and pace yourself through 33, 32 starts. Hey, go all out. Go all out from the beginning. We talked about what we're going to have. 11 starts. Go out there with your best 11. Pitch every one of them like it's game seven. Because in this day and age, they're pulling you after five anyway. So if you can go out there five and strike out a ton and really go out there and and leave it all out there for the 80 to 100 pitches that they're allowing guys to pitch these days. He wins a Cy Young. His price is skyrocketing. He's probably the most coveted free agent out there. The Mets will have that kind of money to burn. so it'll be interesting to see if that's one of the key acquis- acquisitions early on.
0: And we'll end on this before we have we have a long conversation with Maggie Gray where we address a lot of this stuff, but you know pending the approval, Steve Cohen gets the ownership and old friend Sandy Alderson is back and I think him not having the ponds to work with anymore and now having money and just it's just a different role for him now one he's not the gm two he'll be the president of baseball operation and he's got an owner where he's not worried about penny pinching with steve cohen you know i think we can agree that sandy did do some good things and he had to do it under much tougher circumstances yeah i think
1: he's a trusted member of the most recent success that the mets have had you know 15 and 16 going to the playoffs both both Years, This is the kind of person that you want because he did develop and and draft the talented core of this team. That's something I think that as a new owner, he has a relationship already with Sandy. That's a no brainer. And so he wants someone he's comfortable with overseeing things. Now, whether that means Brody's out um, or what he wants to do with Brody, he's got an experienced baseball man that he already trusts to listen to both sides of the coin and make a decision as an owner. So I, I like the move.
0: We will have a new show coming up called Bye Bye Brody. No more Bye Bye Birdie. Dick Van Dyke will not be featured in the episode because Brody will be by the wayside in a few weeks when Stevie Cohen makes me some max. And balls and cooks up a family dinner. We invite your aunts, your cousins, the whole family's invited because bye bye Brody. Bye bye bye. In sync was the first concert I ever attended, and I'll be there again to say bye bye Brody uh, very soon. So, new GM, and that's going to be an interesting episode when it happens. Who will the new GM be? We'll address that on the off season shows as well as Figgy wraps up his bottle of Tylenol because he's, you know, less shows now dealing with me, so many less headaches, so many less bottles of Rolaids, mm-hmm. uh to deal with me. I know, uh, you know, we'll still be around in the offseason, but you won't hear me yelling as much. You'll probably hear me smiling as long as they spend money on guys like JT Rio, Rio Mudo. It'll be, let's hope, a happy offseason. And, you know, a lot of off season contain the Mets signed Adrian Gonzalez. I bring this up every time to a yeah. one-year $500,000 Deal, let's hope it's you know a ten-year, five hundred million dollar deal for Michael Conforto instead. <laughs>
1: we can just see if that'll happen. I, I again, I would love to see Conforto locked up. I think it's already being set up that way. You hear him doing interviews about, I love playing here. Uh, he's got another year of arbitration. Let's slow down. everybody's trying to act like he can walk. Um, so I, I do see that's you know one of the things that you would like to see is him being able to get that kind of a contract, uh, getting two other key pieces. It's going to be a very exciting offseason for the Mets. It's not going to be one of those. We're not shopping at TJ Maxx anymore. I think this is going to be the first time we got to go through Rodeo Drive in a long, long time and uh, actually not just do some window shopping. Shopping.
0: I'm actually a big TJ Maxx and Marshalls fan, so don't hate on those places because I do love them. You know, 90% of my wardrobe is TJ Maxx and Marshalls. The the other 10% is Mets free T shirt Fridays and t shirt giveaways. <laughs> um, so I'll end it on this, Vicky. Bye bye, Brody. Hello, happiness. Hello, not loneliness. I think I'm gonna cry. Tears of joy. Oh um, boy. The the famous The Everly Brothers song. Coming up next, as I have gone. Uh, off the deep amazing end. but
1: true the musical. Yeah, yeah,
0: unbelievable. Pl- listen, inject amazing but true the musical straight into my mother effing veins because that'll be <laughs> that'll be the show that you know breaks the internet. We need the we need it. Alex is smiling because he knows he wants this. He wants bye 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 Brody the musical. We'll have an episode. I can't. That episode is gonna be my favorite episode of the show. Maybe we'll have Omar Mania on that episode. To, <laughs> to, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, I've gone by the wayside, off the deep end. But uh, uh, a lady who isn't on the deep end, as we bring Maggie Gray from WFAI, uh, we bring Maggie Gray from WFAI on onto. Oh my god! We <laughs> what's going on? We bring Maggie Gray from. <laughs> I want this in. You're leaving this in. You're having a stroke. You're having a stroke
1: right now. Uh,
0: the Mets. We bring Maggie Gray from WFAN. I was trying to emphasize the W because at WRHU at Hofstra, they told us how to emphasize that W. But WFAN's Maggie Gray joins us next right here on Amazing But True. All right, joining Amazing But True now, and Figgy's been on her show many a times. It is the co-host of Moose and Maggie, On WFAN, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. She's fresh off the airwaves now. It's Maggie Gray. Maggie, welcome to Amazing But True. How are you?
2: Guys, what up? Thanks so much for having me on your show. I mean, wish we were here talking about a little more Mets positivity in 2020, but I'm happy to be here nonetheless. I'll try to bring my ray of sunshine.
0: Yeah, there's there's not many rays of sunshine this year and you know, we talk about Steve Cohen in the future, but if we look in the present, this team underperformed. The lineup was very good, you know, one of the top batting averages in the league, a lot of good young talent on this team. Yet here we are in another season under 500, clinging on to playoff hopes which are really dead, but mathematically we'll say they are alive going into the weekend. But uh, you know, what's your overall thoughts and frustrations about the season?
2: I'm super disappointed. I'm super disappointed in the Mets because there are going to be so many people who look at all the things that went wrong and let's make all these excuses for everything that went wrong. Well, look at let's look at all the things that actually went right for the Mets this year and they still couldn't capitalize on it. First of all, the lineup that they had It remarkably healthy throughout the 60 games, which is not what a lot of other uh, people can say and a lot of other teams can say they got gifted the DH this year. So you're actually able to put your best lineup on the field every night. And you know what I don't really want to hear about pitching injuries and guys opting out when the team that just clinched the AL East on your field. The Rays lost more pitchers than anyone in baseball and still found a way to get it done. I just, I'm really hoping for the next regime and era and whatever we're about to enter here with Mets baseball. No more excuses, no more hope, no more almost, no more only if this had happened. I mean, Mets fans, and I'm one of them, are so sick of that. There was so much talent on this team. And it's super disappointing that they're going to be on the outside looking in of a playoff race that where half of the teams in the National League are going to be in.
1: Yeah, such a stark contrast, right, between these two teams where uh, the last regime was big on pitching, right? We knew about the five aces, and then they had the bullpen, and you tried the bolster of the bullpen. And then coming into this season, it was like, okay, we have a young, thumping lineup. They performed the way they were supposed to, even missing Key pieces, uh, like a Cespedes who was supposed to be right in the middle of that lineup. They were able to not just perform, but outperform what anybody really thought they were going to do, leading all of baseball and hitting. It was the timely hitting, the clutch hitting that, you know, we didn't see a lot of. The pitching staff, however, up and down for the most part, other than Jacob deGrom, has been a brutal disappointment. And actually, your favorite pitcher now, Jake, uh, Edwin Diaz. So I think that's one of the things that we look at now is, a, a team that was and an organization that was so built on such pitching rich you look at now a guy like Steven Matz what happened to Steven Matz Drive you tell out. us Nelson
2: what happened to Steven Matz because no one can figure this out and it's like either it's if it's still upstairs like we had Frank Viola on the show and I love Frank and he, he was awesome and he's obviously worked a lot with Matt's. and he said with matts it's a confidence issue issue and I'm like a confidence issue. You guys, you pitched to the World Series already. You are too far into your career, unless you have the yips or something, you're too deep into your career to have a confidence
1: issue. 1,000% you hit the nail on the head because how could it possibly be a confidence issue when you're talking about the game is speeding up on me as you're pitching against the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati where there's 13,000 fans when there were fans. There are no fans there. There's no (laughs) one to impress. There's no one to boo you. So it's almost like throwing an expensive form of a bullpen session What is it that's keeping him going? Not even the next level. He has regressed and it was an instant regression. And you look at those. Five aces that they've talked about for years. You let Wheeler walk and a uh, hundred million dollar pitcher, and he's still proving that he's worth a hundred million dollars the way he's been pitching. You look at Noah Syndergaard, finally had to have his Tommy John, it was inevitable. Everybody seems to have to have that, right? Uh, then you go and you look at the other guys, and you think it's Steven Matz is supposed to be that number two, that bulldog mentality. So it's an organization that has told us Matt Harvey was a bulldog, the dark knight. This is who he is. He's a hero, he's the, the, the fan favorite. And look what happened with that. You you have Steven Matz, who's been deemed the bulldog of the, of the organization, the only lefty starter, the guy that, you know, you want in a big situation. And he can't get through an inning without imploding nowadays. Mm-hmm. And the cream that rose to the top of the whole thing was the guy who was, a sh- you know, a shortstop who barely pitched, Jacob DeGrom, who just, be- who just not only became Jacob De- Cygrom, he <sighs> just never – backed down from a challenge he was always accountable he's always hey i didn't have a good stuff today i gave up two runs that's that's the level that he's pitching at where everybody else is sitting there going oh you know my mechanics this my mechanics that and jacob the grom just continue to get better 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 the other four guys get thrown by the wayside. And I said this the other day to Jake, Generation K all over again, if you ask.
2: You know the crazy thing? So I said I'd be a ray of sunshine. So here's actually another thing that went right for the Mets this year, but it was a flawed logic to even get them there is that Seth Lugo can actually start for this team. And I think that they found something there. They knew that he could start. They refused to put him in the starting rotation. And I understood why. Because at that point, you actually did need him to be the fireman, if you will. You need him in your highest leverage situation. You need him to be someone you trust out of the bullpen. So when they decided to make the move, it was like, no, 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 too late now. You, you missed your opportunity. The mm-hmm. opportunity would have been actually right when Cindergard went down to Tommy John surgery, and right. you still had the chance to move guys around and shuffle the deck a little bit, but they didn't because they claimed to have the deepest starting rotation in baseball, obviously not knowing that Marcus Stroman was going to opt out. But that's the the no foresight there, and that's that's what that, that ticks Mets fans off, because by the time you made this experiment and you moved Lugo to the starting rotation, there wasn't enough time left for him to be effective. It actually would have been more effective if you had left him in the bullpen, he would have appeared in more games and actually could have had a bigger impact on this season, and then stretch him out for next season.
0: Yep. And now starting pitching, which was a big strength, is a big weakness going into the offseason, Maggie. and. You kind of look at the free agent market, and there's not a lot of guys out there you don't want to trade more pieces because Brody's already traded away the whole farm. I mean, he traded away the minor league pitcher of the year from Miguel Castro, who we might have to watch for a few more years unless Uncle Stevie says good night to him, which I hope he does. Uh, what do you think about the rotation? Do you like a guy like Trevor Bauer pitching in New York? I mean, he'll he'll provide you and uh, Moose some good quotes, I'm sure, every week. But uh, what do you think about the rotation?
2: Yeah, they need a lot of help. And you want know, to know what? The, the one thing about it and what I'm hoping that if you do throw money at this problem, that it will help because Porcello and Waka together were cheap moves and you saw that you get what you pay for. And so, yeah, this this is a team that needs money. That's what they need. This is not a rebuild, it's not stripped down. This is not a, you know, this is a team that's right there that has so much talent and needs money. So yeah, do you need to be shopping at the top of the market? 100%. I'd rather have them be shopping at the top of the market for a, for a starting pitcher than I would Francisco Lindor. I'd rather have them keep Jimenez. I think Jimenez's ceiling is so high, how he's able to play in his rookie season, the poise, defensively, his bat. Don't go after Lindor, you need a catcher, you need a pitcher, and to be honest, I might be able to get be talked out of this, but I don't know. I mean, center field, do you need George Springer? I don't even know if you need George Springer. I think that you can probably get by with Nimmo. It's just Nimmo sometimes is out of position, and he's taking these bizarre angles to balls and stuff. It's weird. However, I think that if you're going to spend, I would spend pitching and I would spend catching more than I would try to go flashy for a shortstop, even as good as Lindor is or a center fielder, even as good as Springer is.
1: Yeah, the problem with the Mets right now is all their pieces that they could trade away to get anything of value back have underperformed greatly, right? Steven Matz would be a guy that you would say, hey, we, we could." he's a little bit expendable. He's a left-handed with those 95. That's all he does right now. So I think you, you hit the nail on the head again with starting pitching having to be a premium right now. And you're going to have to spend big in somebody like Trevor Bauer with what he does. And you kind got to look at the way these guys would kind of, go off of each other and compliment each other he's not your average pitcher he has you know tremendous spin rates the guy is a genius when it comes to pitch creation and Bauer units and everything else that he's already dabbed, dabbed and tried to make the MLB use he would be a great fit in New York and he's you know one of those guys that's entertaining as well off the field so he's a personality I think that would be a good fit Real Muto has to be in a Met uniform yeah. I don't think it matters what the dollar sign is based on that. And I don't, I don't feel like he's one of those catchers like a Wilson Ramos, where it was like, okay, he's the best offensive catcher available, so let's pay him. You just knew that wasn't going to work out. Yeah. He 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 blew out both his knees. He was overweight as it was. He didn't move well. He wasn't a catch-and-throw guy where they stole off the Mets left, right, and center when they did have catch-and-throw guys. So I think Romoto is top of the shopping list after that. I think you have to honestly go get two starters. You have to get two starters at this point. Lugo stays in the rotation. He jumps in right to your number two. You Peterson. Saw. Peterson um, Although here's the thing with Peterson,
2: though. How many innings do you expect him to actually throw next year?
1: You know what? I think what you're looking for is that he went through a little bit of arm issue already in a 60-game season where he wasn't even being stretched out. But I think now that he understands the rigor and and uh, what it takes to do it at the major league level and how much different it is than the minor league level or co- collegiate level where he was at, I think now what you'll see is uh, him being able to prepare uh, for next season in a way that he hasn't before. Got so it. What I loved about him was – you talk about poise from Jimenez, the poise by Peterson. He had, totally. one, he had one bad outing, you know, and he had the other game when Toronto, against Toronto, who's a good hitting lineup, gave up a two run home run and got better as the game went on when they pulled him a little too soon. But his stuff has played up. He's pitched with what I hope the mats would be out every single time going out there, giving you five, six, and even wanting to push into the seventh. But, you know, pitch count being what it is. The, the kid has shown me a lot and it's not lighting up the radar gun. It's being able to change speeds, command his breaking ball throughout the strike zone. It's not one place, one pitch, one place, another pitch, kind of that routine that the National League, especially National League East, Is used to seeing from Steven Matz, and they're, you know, they were tearing him apart with again. I love what I've seen from Peterson. I love to have Peterson as a five.
2: Wait, can I just say something about Bauer for a second? I realize I kind of sidestepped that question, and I didn't mean to because I actually have a a thought on Bauer, and this is it. I don't know if I would trust Trevor Bauer to come here under the old regime because the Mets have a way of making a one day story a three day story, and the Mets have a way of finding their like. Finding themselves as the punchline. And when you have somebody who is really outspoken in that way and who is going to tell you what he feels, and the reporters are going to be in his face every single night asking him for responses oh, and stuff, you know, if the Mets need to get better about kind of handling that or else it's going to spin out of control and it's going to get away from them and the whole thing's going to implode and and everyone's going to hate this guy. So like that, I would, I I trust him if the Mets can button up that aspect of their franchise because it it exists. It exists that the Mets find a way to be a punchline. And the one thing that you know Bauer's going to lean into, like going back to their days at UCLA, he and Garrett Cole are like mortal enemies. Like he's going to play that up. Mm -hmm. Are the Mets ready to back it up? because he's going to poke the bear and it's going to become headlines and Bauer's going to love it but he's not used to I don't think he understands it's bigger here way Media. bigger than Cleveland and Cincinnati and and so the the Mets have to make sure they have a good handle on this because I think he can definitely pitch here that's not the problem.
1: We talked about before where I had played with the Houston Astros I pitched against the Mets and I'm pitching against Santana I come out after the I think it was in the sixth inning, uh, winning three to two, beating Santana, beating against the Mets who had released me or put me on waivers in camp. So I'm all excited about it. I'm like, okay, I got this locked down. Mark Melanson came in for us at the time. We got him in the trade. First batter he faces is David Wright. Home run, ties up the ball game. There goes my win. The next inning, we come up to bat. Santana walks somebody, Hunter pence hits a home run. And now we go up by two, we win the ball game. Next morning, I'm in the uh, breakfast area at the hotel and I look at the newspaper and the headline says, Mark Melanson earns first big league victory. That was the headline. And I said, wow, it's amazing to be in the Midwest because in New York, they would have buried you about how you were not ready to be in the big leagues. You shouldn't have been in that situation in the game. And you know, this is who you are and this is why you should probably go back down to the minor leagues. That would have been the headline. I said, so here's the headline, take this, keep it for your scrapbook. Because you earned your first big league victory by blowing
0: my win. I appreciate it. Yeah, and those uh-huh. wins came few and far between for you, Figgy. Yeah, so damn you right, made, they did. You needed every last one you can get. Hey, wins don't matter. Wins don't matter. Yeah. Well, I could have yeah. won a Cy Young. I could
1: have won Young. Well, Jacob
0: DeGround knows that all too well. Trevor Bauer, the first tweet that comes by the wayside, as uh, Figgy likes to say by the wayside, like he's Bradley Cooper and a star is born. Um, it's his specialty <laughs> these last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, I could see the first tweet already causing a, a front page headline with us, with at uh, the New York Post. Uh-huh. Uh, We we could see Mike Puma doing a story on on Trevor Bauer's first tweet as a Met. So Luis Rojas front. Where are you, Maggie, on him? I like him as a, he's a nice guy. I do understand the rapport with the players, but I just think you got to go out and clean house here. And that starts with Brody. And I also think Rojas has to go as well. Where are you on Rojas?
2: Listen, guys stepped into a ridiculously difficult situation. I mean, first of all, like you're in the shadow of Beltron, and like the biggest scandal to hit the sport since, I don't know, like steroids and... And you're asked to come in and and you're asked to to take this team uh, to the playoffs. I think it was going to be really difficult. However, I think there are areas where I think Luis Rojas fell a little bit short and things I would have liked to see in a little bit more. Number one, if you have a really good command of your players because you coach them in the minor leagues, especially a guy like Pete Alonso, what can we do to help Pete Alonso? Right? Like, I don't even know if that's actually Luis Rojas's job, but... That's something where like, I'm not like you brought in Todd Frazier at the end to like maybe lighten the mood for Alonzo. If that was even true, that was ridiculous. Secondly, like I, I guess I thought the communication might even be a little bit better. Also, this is the you know, what? let me make this number one. The Mets don't strike me as being a particularly smart baseball team. There are a lot of mistakes. The base running errors, the defense is still not great. It's never been. And so I think that is okay to put that on the manager, actually. I think whether or not your baseball team, your are you would know this, like just because you get to the majors doesn't mean you stop learning. And as a manager, doesn't mean you stop teaching. And I think there were moments there where it was mind boggling that the Mets aren't a smarter baseball team. And like even, it's not just the fringe guys or the young guys like Jeff McNeil and base running errors and, and you're all stars. So I think, I think Luis can, should shoulder that blame. But overall, we did not get enough time to see what he really can be as a major league manager. He got a good break, like professionally by being able to manage this team because of what happened to Beltron. but he actually did get very unlucky because he stepped into a really tough situation and an unforgiving situation.
1: Yeah. If you look at a uh, case in point, right, you have uh, a med Rosario who, when he came up, It was almost like learning on the fly. He was 21 years old and they were literally doing curveball machine out extra at work before games, how to take a lead off of first base, baseball 101. And it's okay to have a baseball IQ and baseball instincts, but the game at the major league level happened, things happen so much faster because these guys are the best of the best. So what you're seeing a lot is guys going rushed through the system and certain facets of the game are not, they're not even valued anymore. Uh, you know, back when pitchers were uh, still hitting, bunting, sacrifice bunt, moving guys over, the little things like that. Guys used to go during the drills and this go over by where the machine was, knock down, you know, bunts, however they were. They didn't care about the direction of the bunt. They didn't care about the speed or the pace of the bunt. I bunted five balls. I did my job today. And that was it. A lot of these things where Luis Rojas's job previously was quality control. He was the quality control guy. So what that meant was he was the guy to go and explain every situation of what just happened and why why. why it needed to be done a different way. I think as the manager, we heard Mickey Calloway say this, right? He had to kind of shy away from being around the pitchers all the time because that was his first, his true love was pitching, uh, being a pitching coach and, and working with pitchers and having that relationship with the pitchers. But now he had to work and oversee everything. So you hope that your coaching staff is able to really, hey, you know what? you handle the infielders everything that they do right wrong and different you got to stay on top of them because i get it they paid professionals some of them don't want to hear it i mean listen mcneil had the he had the ug face for the first half of the season. Anytime he swung the bat, anytime he didn't make a, get a hit, anytime- Terrible
2: body language.
1: Terrible body language. That in itself, the body language, like there should have been a veteran presence to check him with that. But the veteran presence is Robinson Cano. And what's the knock on Cano? Terrible body language, right? It'd be a biggest player in the game and he's just kind of half nonchalant. Everybody (laughs) complains about that. So there wasn't that presence. So I think why Todd Frazier was brought back is because Frazier could yell at people in a way where he call him Big Dog by not even addressing him by their real name, but he would say it and there was a respect factor because this guy's actually done it on the field and we know who he is. Where Rojas, again, yes, he's a manager and he's a quality control guy, but when he turns around and says to his coaching staff, Tony Di Francesa, Di Sarcina, those guys, I don't think there is anyone who any of these players are like, okay, wow, I get it. This guy knows what he's doing. Beltran would have been a different story. Just by yep. pure magnitude of Nimmo would have been a much better outfielder just because that would have been Beltran's biggest thing, right? Imparting his knowledge, his expertise on, hey, first step, anticipate this, do that take this route and he would have been teaching on the fly with that. When you're a quality control person, you you're you're and especially when you become a manager, there's so many things happening at the same time. It's a lot for anybody. And so over a 60 game season, and I said this to Jake uh, not too long ago, if he's made five mistakes that have cost them games, and he was able to do that over the course of 162 instead of 60, it would have been a different story. You hope they learn from their mistakes, and it happens to players just like it happens to managers. Delegation of whose responsibility that is to acknowledge those things and the base running and the there's being overly aggressive and there's not being aggressive enough. How many times do we see balls get, you know, get away or go to the backstop? and Cano wouldn't take off for second. Yeah. The, the dirtball read was uh, a Mickey Calloway quote, and everybody's like, oh yeah, we should get t-shirts made up because they're so aggressive. They did that in spring training, and then spring, and then the season hit, and after the first 11 games, we never really saw it the rest of the season. So, I get it. I do think that Rojas is okay. You have to have him maybe for another year. Jake is ready to hire anybody else as the manager and let him go back to his old Give job. Give me Buck
0: <laughs> Showalter. Give me a savvy vet in here. It's been so long. We keep these rookie managers. I know, you know, sometimes they Pan out, But this team has so many young players, I'd rather a veteran guy and enough of the analytics and going by the war and, and the numbers. I mean, that's taken over Maggie, maybe you could speak to this how analytics have taken over the game. And a quality control coach, that's what Luis Rojas was. He was the guy looking at the book. He was taking the thing out of his back pocket. You know, how do I face this guy? How do I defend this guy? And I'm younger. I shouldn't be an old school guy. I should be a new school (laughs) guy. But uh, I'm not a fan of it. I'd rather someone like Buck in here.
2: Well, I mean, listen, Buck has an incredible resume, sure. But I think that even those old school, quote unquote, managers have to get on the analytics train, like, and I just wish the Mets were doing it better. I mean, if Luis Rojas' old job was quality control and explaining to guys what they're supposed to be looking at well i don't think he did a good job of that this year you know maybe nelson to your point like he should he can't you know he's just too busy now well,
1: schneider this year right brian schneider was the uh... yeah brian
2: schneider yeah as a former right so maybe that's him and you can have all the numbers and all the data in the world you could have the yankees data, you know analytics department which is like 25 people like down in tampa are probably bigger now but if the players, if they aren't getting the information in a way that's digestible for each and every one of them, then it's just a spreadsheet, right? It's just a spray chart. It's just a heat map. It's not, you don't even know what you're looking at. And so, I, I mean, I think the analytics revolution, like it's here, man. It's not going anywhere. And so it's it's time for the Mets to like get on board heavy. With that. And, and I think
0: Uncle Stevie, I don't know if you've adopted him, he's made you spaghetti and meatballs yet, but you know he's going to be here and beef up that department. I think he's going to beef in a lot of baseball guys that the Wolpons didn't really take care of.
2: Oh, definitely. And they have to. I mean, it's woeful how they were so far behind in that instance. And, you know, to be honest, though, I think that the Mets scouting and their draft, I mean, highly touted draft class this year, there are obviously talented people. Who are picking out great players and Sandy Alderson being back now? He picked out this whole core. He's mm-hmm. responsible for most of these guys, especially the lineup. So I think they just need they need more and the, and it's not just more and bigger and who can you spend money on and da dah, 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 It's about communication. How is it getting to the players in a way that they actually can apply it?
0: Do you like the return of Sandy? Are you, are you a fan of that move?
2: Sure. I mean, here's my thing about Sandy as a president of baseball. Yeah. I like Sandy. And I think that, yeah, I do. I worry a little bit like defense, for example, the Mets have not cared about defense as an organization for a long time. And that was also under Sandy. Mm -hmm. It's something that needs to be rectified, needs to be changed. It's something that needs to have attention and be a priority for this franchise. And so I'm kind of hoping that Sandy's more of like the, the overview guy and not so much the day-to-day guy. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, I, I think it's good that he's not necessarily the general manager. But I think to come in and to be leading up the department, I think that's a good job
1: yeah for for sandy and and i said this before about it he went out remember because of health concerns of the day in and day out the stresses of that so i didn't see him coming back in something of that capacity i do see him coming back in an, an overview someone who i feel like the new ownership feels that he can trust he probably has a relationship with sandy already built over being a mets fan for years and years and years going to the ballpark and when you're steve cohen All the big people come to your suite and hang out at the ballpark. And so he has a relationship with him. And it's somebody that right off the bat, he feels he can trust. Um, Now, when it comes to decision-making on keeping Brody and keeping Luis Rojas, that's someone he's going to lend his ear to. He's going to want to hear what Sandy thinks about what the new regime has done since he's left with the analytics and with the shifts and everything. So w- when it came to defense, what everybody thought you could do is you could just shift yourself into better defensive positions, right? And so what you see is guys being up the middle, three guys on one side. And if you're pitching is serving up meatballs, what does it matter if you have a shift? The Mets were built on strikeout pitchers, power pitchers who had swing and miss stuff. So that's right. what Sandy's idea was, hey, we don't need guys uh, defensive, the top five defensive of players in every position what we need is guys that can handle the bat guys that can play adequate defense and what they tried to do throughout those years was make the gap between the bench player and the starting player less and less and less this year is the, the most complete lineup yeah. that we have seen pete Alonso's not in the lineup if that happened last year you're like what is going on what Oh, because Dom Smith's in the lineup. I'm sorry, Dom Smith's leading the team in RBIs, you know, in second home runs and, you know, batting 330. That's where I think.
2: And it- to be fair to Brody, he actually said that too, Nelson. Remember, he was yeah. like, the gap between the A team and the B team needs to close. And he actually, you know, it's it's Sandy's players, but Brody right. did it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, Brody Brody did it. And also what he did was, I think he they, they've instilled in, in these guys, it was, Dom was 23 years old and being told he was a bench player a guy to come off and be a defensive specialist at the end of games and I think the best thing that happened to him early on in the season was Pete Alonso struggling and it wasn't a ha ha look he's struggling I get an opportunity it was don't worry I got your back the same way last year Pete Alonzo you saw it they were rooting each other on high-fiving in the dugout yeah most situations don't ever play out that way. The harm, the harmony that was involved in that, and that Dom hit the walk off to win that game because he came in as a you know taking over for Pete Alonso in that game. He gets his first swing since he injures himself a month and a half ago and hits the walk off to win the last game of the season that's storybook asking you to see dom now take that next step where does this team go next what is the next step for them it it can't be the players right it's got to be the pitching staff disappointments that we had with maybe alonzo not batting his weight what coaches what coaching staff is going to get the most out of these players because analytically, like you said, you can give them the numbers that the Yankees and the Astros are using combined, and I don't think it would have been a better outcome.
0: Yeah. Get rid of Rojas still. Get rid of Brody. <laughs> You're Three not years. a fan, Jake, of no, Rojas. I'm not. I just, you know, he had yeah. so many instances where he had nobody ready in the bullpen, nobody warming in the bullpen, and then he had other times where he would leave a guy in too long and vice versa, and, you know, it's those five, or, you talk about five games being blown this year. I mean, that's the difference between a playoff team and not a playoff team. So, you know, we'll look ahead to the future, of course, and I think the future is bright, but just infuriating that a 16-team playoff, this team is not in there. Um, and you know, a lot, large part of that is the guys you talk about walk and Porcello were a train wreck and every, you know, two at, two to three out of every five days, you were like hoping for a prayer that the Mets would win and you're not going to win that way. Maggie gray, a couple more minutes, you know, you were a lifelong Mets fan and you end up on WFAN. You end up replacing. Okay. Uh, what kind of fan are you? A giants fan. You end up replacing Frances a little bit. And, uh, you know, that <laughs>
2: impersonation there. Jake. No,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm not that good. Yeah, no, I'm not that good. Uh, Um, But that has to be a cool thing for you as a you know Met fan to be on the fan. You know, that's been a goal of mine my whole life. And, you know, rising through the sports media industry from SI to here had to be a surreal moment for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've really, I've loved it even more than I thought I was going to love it, and I thought I was going to love it a lot uh it's really been like a dream come true to work there um because it means so much um to to people listening like it's incredible how much people welcome us in to like this huge part of their lives and actually i feel lucky that they welcome me in because that's not an easy position to be in obviously with replacing mike and then what happened with him coming back and then having to kind of shuffle the deck a little bit it's you know hasn't been exactly smooth and so for the audience to, you know, accept me as like kind of one of their own, I've appreciated that because I'm, I'm climbing an uphill battle in two ways, you know, replacing a legend and then all the stuff that goes on after that. And then also, as you know, one of the first full-time female hosts at the Fan since the legendary Susan Waldman. <laughs> I talk about no pressure or anything; just follow up. Susan is like baseball historian and unbelievable woman. You know, it's it's not something I take lightly. And I've appreciated that people I think no longer look at me as like the new girl or just um, look at me as someone who's who is this person. I think they've they've gotten to know me a little bit. I think I'm just I'm one of the I'm one of the crew now, or at least I like to think so. And and that's a a, that's a really great feeling because I know how much the fan meant to me and uh, and I know how much it means to our listeners.
1: Listen, I, I can tell you from uh, firsthand knowledge of of watching your growth from SI when we first met oh, over, over in 51st Street. Yeah. And- we sat there, I was, you know, wet behind the ears, learning the ropes of what it took to be on television. And I know how difficult it is. And just to see your preparation second to none. And, and I love when we would talk, you know, in passing on days that you would come into S&Y and just watching you brainstorm about where you were gonna take it in a different direction. Almost every conversation always got spun around. You know, Everybody kind of hit the, the normal things that every fan is talking about. Maggie would come out of nowhere with something that made you go, huh, I haven't thought of that yet. And it would piss me off. Cause I'm sitting there going, okay now i gotta go inside the numbers and and go with her but she does her homework she comes ready she comes prepared as soon as that thing starts showing video maggie's looking down at her notes and (laughs) has all these numbers to spit out at you and i remember one time she got done and she pulled it off flawlessly and i look over and i just have one of these faces on like okay all right i i gotta deal with andy martino on the other side you know going the best yeah you know know martino's going for martino's going for the the hate mail no matter what (laughs) dr evil (laughs) yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the guy that just wants to give the sound bite of something that's so off base that everybody, real fans are like, oh, this guy has no idea. And then the people are, you know, just average listeners are like, oh my God, did you hear what he said? And then Maggie's always dropping knowledge on everybody. Like, uh-huh, this is exactly what it is. So I've learned to love your work and 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 tune in all over the gamut of where you've been, followed wow. you your whole career. You remind me so much, like I used to talk about Jessica Mendoza when she got on the air. And Amazing. Are like, who's, his who's his girl talking baseball? And I sat there going, she's on the alongside Aaron Boone at the time. And I'll never forget. It was a playoff game. And she teed it up for Aaron Boone. And she said, Hey, Aaron, talk about what it's like to be in the the pressure of a playoff situation coming up in a big at bat. And he was like, <laughs> literally, this was his answer. Yeah, it was cool. That was it. That's all he had. Meanwhile, she had, she That's had funny. A- he had done like a whole walkthrough thing with, um, I want to say it was Cespedes at the time, about how he prepares his hitting routine, what he goes through, and did that inside scoop. And she was, you know, hanging up with him, doing the drills and everything. And I said to people, that's the beauty of, of someone like her and someone like you, is that there is no longer a preconceived notion, oh, she can't talk about it because she's never done it before. She does her homework, man. She knows what she's talking about. She's never a shot in the dark or gonna tell you it from a, a, a obscure perspective that that uh, doesn't make sense. Once you hear what Maggie Gray has to say, it <laughs> does give you that, it gives you that CNC music factory, things that made you go, hmm.
2: Oh, thank you, Nelson. I was just now thinking, I'm like, what is Cespedes' pregame routine? Is like a pack of Newports and just like- oh,
0: <laughs> Or <More laughs> Reds. Or they Reds? Okay. okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the cigarette of champions. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think it's important, Maggie, that we do, you know, with everything that's gone on with, you know, people like Maria Taylor, Taylor Rooks, that we support women in sports media. Um, because, you know, it's important, and you guys are great, and you're crushing it. Um, we love hearing you on the fan, and, you know, we'll be hopefully doing broadcasts from McFadden's at points next year, so we hope you stop by the show. We'll have a couple of beers and drink in our sorrows of Mets losses um, while we record this show, so uh, you know, catch Maggie with Moose, uh, you know, Mark Melusis on the fan, 10 to 2, um, every day, Monday to Friday. Follow her on Twitter, at Maggie Gray. Maggie, best wishes to you, your son, Lucas, your husband, oh. your whole family, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll talk to you in the off season when stevie cohen is spending big moolah on this franchise
2: guys it's my pleasure thank you for having me on i'm obviously huge fans of all of yours thank you for the kind words i don't deserve that but thank you and uh continued success and hopefully success for the mets here moving forward
0: And that says bye-bye-bye to episode 30, the Michael Conforto or Uncle Cliffy edition of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast on the New York Post.
1: Jake has been singing a lot today, and he's got a lot more uncles than I knew about. But thanks to you and Alex Camerata for producing the show. Subscribe to Amazing But True wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. As always, we appreciate your support.
0: For Nelson Figueroa, who is not my uncle, I am Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday after the regular season comes to an end. We'll look back at the good, the bad, and the ugly from the 2020 Mets and look ahead to the off season with Uncle Stevie. We'll talk to you Monday, folks. Stay safe.